That's it for making contact today. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Amy Gastelum. We'll be right here for you next week. Until then. are tuned in to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. KBOO is proud to co-sponsor the Village Building Convergence from June 10th to 18th, 2023. This is an annual community building event bringing together community members and neighborhoods to engage in grassroots placemaking and sustainable community building throughout Portland. More information on how to get involved in this year's Village Building Convergence can be found on the website villagebuildingconvergence.com.
Good evening. You're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Uh, today we are talking with Avi Sakatapulu and Anne Pellegrini, uh, psychoanalysts and professors at NYU, about their new book, which is coming out in June, called Gender Without Identity. Um, Avi and Anne, welcome to Transpositive. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Um, so you've written this new book called Gender Without Identity. I'd like to just get a summary of the book first and then talk about both of you a little bit and kind of hear your bios, and then we'll start talking more in depth about the book. Um, would one of you care to give a summary about the book? Sure. Uh, and do you want to go or should I jump in? Why don't you jump in and then I can fill in as needed. Okay. Um, So we wrote this book as um, this book came out of a really difficult encounter we had in our field um, in the effort to publish a piece of work that we had done around a trans child, a child who might come to identify as trans. We don't know if they're trans yet, but a child who presented um, in the clinic for treatment. Um, And we found that the that the theories that we have to work with gender right now fall short. And this is something that in some ways we have been encountering in a variety of different contexts and working with trans patients, with queer patients. Um, and we wanted to propose a way of understanding gender that doesn't run into the usual problems that we have when we think about um, how, how gender comes about um, and to take a distance, of course, from the very virulent transphobic narratives that are dominating right now, um, like both public conversations around transness, and which are also very present in our field. But at the same time, um, not having noticed that there is that the that the argument that um, gender is just something that one is born with, and that the work of gender is just to discover what one's true gender is and then go from there, which has been the most affirmative um, story that narrative or way of understanding gender that we've been able to come up with as a culture so far in order to push back against transphobia also runs into some problems. So we wanted to flag what these problems are to show how they actually, even as they try to protect queer life, they consign queer life to uh, a certain to certain kinds of critiques and uh, attacks that we see now playing out quite intensely, uh, and to offer a different way of thinking about gender overall for um, for all people, for queer people, for trans people, and for cis people. Great, thank you. Well, that sounds like a really interesting book. I I have so many questions for you, so I can't wait to get to them. But before I do, first, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves, each of you, just so our audience um, knows a little bit about your backstory. Um, Why don't we start with you, Anne? Can you tell us a little bit about your bio? Who are you? And uh, what drew you to this book? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, as you mentioned, I'm I'm a faculty member at NYU. um, So I'm a professor in two departments in performance studies and social and cultural analysis, which is where gender and sexuality studies is housed at NYU. And I teach classes on religion and the politics of sexuality, on gender and violence. Um, and I, I guess I'm most known within um, the field of, of queer theory. Um, and I'm also a psychoanalyst. I, I came to um, do my training as a psychoanalyst later in life um, after having you know, been, I've been a professor for, oh gosh, 26 years now. So a lot of years teaching gender and sexuality studies and queer theory. Um, and so I've come to clinical work after having had this experience working with a lot of young people over a lot of time and, and watching an amazement and wonder and delight at all the wild genders that are presenting themselves in my classroom and watching these changes over the years, which is just dazzling. Um, and in my um, private practice as a clinician, I'm working with a lot of trans and queer people um, of various ages. So these, I, you know, I'm having this experience in these two domains, the classroom and the clinic, of, of hearing people do a lot of grappling with how to tell the story of, of their identity. Um, and that's a story that certainly interested me intellectually in other books I've written, but in particular, how do we tell the story of ourselves? And 
and thinking about how inadequate some of those cultural stories are, this is certainly this, this question about can we develop more complex narratives? It's one that Avi and I share and that we're trying to bring to the project of this book, Gender Without Identity. Great, thank you so much. And what about you, Avi? Um, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to this book? Yeah, um, I was, uh, I was, I'm an immigrant from Cyprus and from Greece. I did my undergraduate training in Greece and moved to the States uh, to become um, basically a psychoanalyst. So I got my PhD in clinical psychology and then proceeded to train as a psychoanalyst working with children and with adults um, and very, very closely with a queer community and with um, trans children. Um, what drew me to the book was finding the impasses in some of the psychoanalytic theories that I've been trained to work with, but which actually have not helped me in my work with trans kids and trans adults and um, non-binary patients and wanting to basically, basically create the theory that we need in order to be able to work towards a flourishing of the queer community. Oh, great. Thank you. And so I'm going to start asking you some questions. But before before I do, I just want to know, um, how did you end up working on this book together? Um, do you teach together in the same department? Are you friends? Did you know each other before this? Yeah, we've been working together for some time and our academic work has a lot of overlaps. Mm -hmm. We're also um, both clinicians and have had conversations uh, privately, we've been in groups. This is actually a big, um, a big part of the background of this book. For many years, we've been in private groups with other clinicians discussing our work, which is a very standard thing in the field. Getting together in peer supervision groups to discuss work that um, that appears in the consulting room that one might need help with or input about. Um, and for some time, we had been meeting with a smaller group of other queer clinicians like ourselves beginning to talk about some things that we were observing in the clinic, but were very concerned about speaking out loud because of how they could be misused or um, how they could be employed to be weaponized against uh, trans and queer life. And it is out of these conversations and more recently a paper we co-wrote together that we decided to move towards writing this book. Right. And, you know, to actually pick up on something Avi just said, in, in these conversations with our colleagues, also queer and trans, you know, we were, we were you know, sort of seeing and hearing similar things with, with you know, patients we work with, you know, that the language of born that way um, wasn't adequate to how people were even talking about their own gender or their own sexuality, for that matter. And so we were trying to, you know, talk together with our colleagues about, so what languages can we use? And the theories within psychoanalysis haven't been adequate. And certainly some of the larger cultural narratives aren't either because there's, we seem to have two options, you know, that basically everyone's born that way where one could be born one way or another. Like, so that makes room for difference. There's something immutable somehow. And there are trans people and there are cis people. Um, I guess non-binary people would be born that way too, but we've got a born that way model makes room for people to be different from each other. Or there's the horrible transphobic and homophobic born that way model where everyone's really born cis and born straight. And anyone who thinks they're trans or thinks they're queer was somehow warped, rather through a bad influence, the wrong website, some kind of trauma. And we just felt neither of these was adequate. Either certainly the warp that way isn't adequate, it's it's homophobic, it's transphobic, but even the born that way, because or of so many trans and queer people might feel as if they've always been this way, so it feels innate and born. But other trans and queer people would tell a different story of how they came to understand themselves as queer and trans. So we wanted to make room for the more for that complexity and not basically and not feel like we all had to sign on to a version of born that way in order to make room for queer and trans people to be given the dignity of equality to be provided space for flourishing. We, you know, we're really invested in this as members of the queer community ourselves. Well, great. So um, <clears throat> I'm going to start digging into some questions and I'm just, I mean, I'm really 
in, this is so interesting to me. And some of what you say, I think, is going to be, uh, you know, really great, maybe even new information for people to kind of think about from a new perspective. So one of the, one of the um, I don't know if I'd call it a claim, but I guess it would be a belief that you have in your book is that gender cannot be confirmed or disconfirmed. Um, and that you think it simply exists in relationship to how it's experienced at the moment. Could we dig into that a little bit? Um, because I mean, I think that a lot of people think that gender, I don't know, it's, I mean, I think people kind of hope there's some kind of scientific test somewhere, or there's some ultimate truth about gender, especially mm -hmm. about gender identity. Um, so mm -hmm. are you, are you saying something different from that? Or are you uh, just kind of maybe uh, fleshing that out a little bit and giving it a little bit more definition? Well, we're definitely saying something uh, different than that. Um, so in Let's let's put aside for a moment the transphobic story of, kind of like that how being trans is about having had kind of like having been somehow warped out of one's natural gender course, which is assumed to be cis. So let's let's set that aside for a moment and speak from within um, ways of thinking that try to affirm trans life and to uh, make room for it. In in that narrative, there is usually the story that the, one is trans because that's just who one is. And therefore, any, um, any, um, that if, that there's something very core about core to one's being, kind of like the notion of a true self, the notion of something kind of like gender being authentic to oneself is, is very compatible with this idea. And what, what we found is that there is, we've seen patients in the clinic who have not understood themselves as trans from the beginning. There are, of course, from the beginning of their lives or from as early as they can remember, there are, of course, people who did not understand themselves originally like that because they didn't have the terms for it or because it took them some time to be, time to be able to identify that way or to overcome their own resistances to fearing that they would be trans but not wanting to. And therefore, it took quite a bit of emotional labor to be able to articulate themselves to themselves as being trans. But then there, there's also um, people who come to understand themselves as trans later, or who we might even say um, become their gender later in life. And we do not in our current discourse have a sense of thinking about how we can talk about gender as something that one also becomes rather than as something that one is at one's core. And we, so the notion of gender identity presumes that there is something authentic at the center of the self, kind of like one sense of gender. And that if we can just get behind the notion that some people's gender identity is um, kind of like in accordance with their, with their gender assigned at birth, or and some, for some people it isn't, then that opens up the path for a non-transphobic way of thinking. And I think that that does some work but it leaves a lot of people out, including people, and this is one of the most difficult, challenging, but we think also expansive part of our argument in the book, including the fact that some people's genders develop in response to external events, to emotional experiences, and become what they are in the course of living life, and not just as a matter of of being of some kind of like ontological category of you are like that from the start. Great, thank you. Do you have anything to add to that, Anne? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about one of when you were sort of asking this initial question, Emma. You said something, you know, that you know it is you know it, there's the hope, right, that somehow or you know one idea would be like we're born that way and sort of gender just genders in us and then the question is and there might even be some sort of scientific test to measure it i know you were speaking with some humor there as well but also seriously you know in some sense seriously what would be the diagnostics to prove that someone's gender is true to them um and here's the thing there isn't one right and to suggest that there would be such that someone would have to produce this true narrative of this core gender that's been there all along coerces people to tell a story of themselves that actually might not even be 
authentic to how they have felt the development of the gender, how they've experienced coming into their transness, for example, or into their, their queerness. And we certainly know, and this is necessary given how therapists, doctors are often gatekeepers for people, for trans people to get access to gender affirmative care. We know that trans people often have to tell a wink wink story about their gender, how it feels to them in order to get access to, you know, to hormones, to, to surgeries. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about how someone might even tell the story of themselves to themselves or to their besties, like where they're not having to get the insurance company or the doctor to sign off. And yes, we're, we're trying to provide more room and a room that doesn't set up all sorts of tests about how you're supposed to be able to prove that your gender is true. Your gender is your gender. It's like how you might understand it at a particular moment, a moment that perhaps has is, I don't know, the sediment, can I use that language? It's sort of like, it's built on other moments. And as Avi was just saying, and this is, I think, some of the challenge of our work, that some of that experience of gender has been informed by things that came from the outside into us. Even things that were unpleasant, we could even say traumatic, but we can do things with those experiences and, and turn them into, I don't know, a different a kind of self-understanding into a lived and flourishing experience of gender. And we wanna make that possible for trans people to claim and genderqueer people to claim. Um, and so that, you know, we have, we can claim that story about ourselves and it, cause it also feels true. So we're not going for a, uh, like a Broca's region, a kind of explanation <laughs> of gender identity here. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely okay. not. And you know, I, I would add to that, that look like the search for some um, kind of like hormonal factor or some brain structure or some chromosomal um, issue that then accounts for somebody's gender has has been with us for a very long time. Like I remember in 95, there was this very famous study by Zhu et al. that compared the um, kind of like post-mortem, the brains of um, uh, trans women with cis women and found that there was some structure that was more similar in uh in the trans female brain to cis women than it was to cis men. And that was, so to speak, it was a very exciting finding because so this, because that was understood as implying that there it is, we found that it's in the brain and that is what tells us that trans women are women. But of course that, I mean, how much good has that done us politically? I think very little. Um, no, And I think that part of that is because this search for something tangible, objective, biological, the Broca's region, like you were saying, or a chemical or a singular moment that can account for why somebody is their gender makes, makes zero sense. Gender is an experience of oneself that draws from a bunch of things that is not confirmable or, reconfirm or, or disconfirmable. There's nothing to look for. And as a clinician who is often asked to write letters for hormones and for surgical procedures, I would say that there's these ongoing conversations um, in my field, like oftentimes when I teach clinicians about this matters, they say to me, but how do we know that we can trust that this person's gender is what they say it is so that they, then we can get behind the project of giving them a letter or signing a paper for hormones. And, and that is such, um, it, it's such a kind of like red herring kind of question. There is nothing that you can discover that will tell you if this is a person's gender. The person's gender exists in the moment that it is asserted and it is what it is by virtue of the fact that it is experienced this way. So it sounds like you're maybe trying to put yourselves out of business because I read <laughs> here that you um, you would like to uh, make the claim that, that uh, gender identity of LGBTQ people is no more reason for seeking therapy than cis uh, straight people or straight women. Um, so if 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 we don't need to go see a therapist, then um, you know, I, boy, that's just a whole. That's, I don't think I've ever heard a therapist say that transgender people do. I mean, I totally agree with you. I, I have to say this. I totally agree with you. When I did my own transition, um, 
I really didn't need to go see a therapist. I, I was required to at the time mm-hmm. because that was the rule. And mm-hmm. I had to go and talk about with two people who I never had really known in my life. I didn't have a relationship with and I've never seen them without. I just talk all about my personal life. And that was how I was able to, you know, get on the docket for having surgery and for, you know, doing mm-hmm. everything that really changed my life in a really positive way. Um, so what would people, I mean, how would people be able to get medical services if they don't need to go see a therapist? How does that work? You know, I, I just love what you said. That's kind of like that we're trying to put ourselves out of business um, <laughs> because it, it is true in this, in this particular way that um I mean, I'll speak for myself, even though I would imagine that Anne agrees with me, that there is there is no like the reason why we're writing writing letters is is for insurance reasons, for coverage reasons, and that's built into the system. If the system changes, like I think we have no business writing letters. We have no business ascertaining anything about anybody's gender. The only concern that does remain, I think, for us uh, with some surgical procedures is, is this person in, a, in an emotional condition where they can take care of themselves after a surgery, which is a consideration that applies to many surgeries, though not all people who undergo surgeries are asked to demonstrate that they can take care of themselves after a surgery. Um, and this is kind of like, this is the messed up aspect. Of, of this situation. Um, but, but I would say that even though, even though there is no kind of like the, we, we absolutely disagree with the gatekeeping model, people also come to therapy because they want to talk about their feelings and they want to talk about transphobic experiences they've had. And they go to people that they establish relationships with rather than people to whom they are assigned or to whom they have to go so that they can get their letters and kind of like get ultimately what they need, which should just be available to them without this, without this intervention. I mean, in some ways it would be lovely if, um, I hope none of our colleagues are listening to this, if we could put therapists out of this particular business. Um, But, but given the realities of the transphobic and homophobic world we live in, I think we both certainly expect that there are many trans and queer people who will come to therapy to have a safe space to talk about those experiences. Um, but they won't be coming, and they certainly are not be coming to our offices in order to be fixed and, and straightened out. That's not, that is not the work we're doing. Um, and you know what, we should also, I know that of you would agree with this as well. We also both, both work with people who identify as cis and who identify as straight. And they're also coming to us and talking about the struggles they have with their gender and their sexuality. This is a common thing that happens in therapy. People talk about their intimate lives. People talk about their relationship to their bodies. But we don't usually think of this as, oh, cis people are struggling with their gender when they talk about this. Or, uh, they're, oh, these straight people are struggling with their sexuality. But yes, they too are struggling with sexuality and gender. But somehow it's, it's, it's the problem that queer people have and trans people have. If gender is something we all in some ways acquire, come into, and live, then therapy could be a space in which everybody gets to talk about their gender. But again, not as a problem to be fixed, but as a condition, as a, as a site of embodiment and flourishing. That, that, you know, that's, that's the hope, that people can live their gender more fully in a way that is, I don't know, is, yeah, again, a site of flourishing and, and, and possibility. I mean, one one of the really strange things that we came to discover, actually, even though we've been both writing about gender for a very long time, we only discovered it in writing this book. It was it was in front of us this whole time, but we had just never seen it, which is how kind of like cis normativity works. Like cis normativity puts things out there, and you just are not visible to you. Is that in our field, psychoanalysis has treated. Cis people, of course, not naming them as cis, but has treated cis people regarding their cisgender since the beginning of the field. There's been conversations about kind of how a woman feels about her femininity, about what it constrains her from, what it makes possible, how it anguishes her, what she loves about it, what it has to do with her mother, what it has to do with her father, with the, 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 psych, the social structures around her. 
And, and the same goes for cis masculinities. So in some ways, it is very accurate to say that we have always been preoccupied with gender and we've always been thinking about how people come into their gender when it comes to cis people, but of course, never with an eye towards changing their gender or pathologizing their gender. So it is quite striking to consider that if you take a step back and think and zoom out and recognize that gender has been preoccupying clinicians in cis people too, but because cis normativity is the dominant way of thinking, we have never thought that we're thinking about gender. We thought that we're thinking about, at best, misogyny or patriarchy, when in fact, those those are all connected. The, the connective tissue of gender is are these structures. Thank you. Um, we're talking today, this is Transpositive, and we're talking today with um, Avi Sakatapulu and Anna Pellegrini um, about their new book, which examines ideas about core gender identity. When we're talking specifically about the idea of accessing therapeutic services as a precondition of treatment for issues related to gender identity, the laws have changed a lot <clears throat> in the last 10 years. And so there are some states where it is no longer a requirement that you actually have to go see a therapist in order to have certain procedures. Now, on the other hand, uh, there's this backlash going on right now, and I'd like to get into this just a little bit. Um, you know, during the show, there's a backlash going on. In, in Missouri, in particular, they just passed this law that requires you not only to see a, a you know a therapist before you can access services but you also have to prove that you're not a set of categories of identity that would um you know conflict with receiving treatment including um i think the you know some of the most extreme are that you can't have a diagnosis of autism uh you also um need to uh, rule out any other pre-existing um, uh, diagnoses that you might have, uh, and these are these are being put not necessarily as stumbling blocks, but requirements. People who want to access services, adults who want to access services in the state of Missouri, are now being required to uh, utilize. So, at least in some states, I think there's actually a plan to go even more deeper into the therapeutic model in order to impose restrictions on individuals, adults who want to, um, you know, access services that uh, help them to deal. with with issues related to gender identity. Could you speak on that? Definitely. Um, this is, I mean, it started out, as you said, with trans kids. And many of us were not surprised to see that it is now extending to trans adults. And my worry is that we'll see a lot more of that. But to, to get your question about... Um, kind of like these kind of like exclusion criteria, the things that have to be ruled out in order for somebody to be able to have access to the medical care they need. I think we need to start with calling this what it is, which is that it is a way of making it harder and harder for trans people to access the care that they need and they deserve. And there are Organizations I'm thinking, for example, about um, SEGM, the Study for uh, Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, who have made it their job to collect data of questionable quality um, that, that is then put into the, it, that is then made available for trainings of clinicians uh, through, through also through the GIRA, the Gender Exploratory Th um, uh, Association, Therapy Association, uh, but also make these available for legislative purposes. Um, that kind of like, and, and some of these, um, some of these clinicians are now very involved in consulting with um, 
kind of like with medical boards in state legislatures that are considering these kinds of laws. Um, the the question of, of autism, the question of, kind of like other kinds of diagnosis that would be exclusionary is a very big problem. Uh, it basically demands that it demands an unimpeachable psychic record of trans people for medical care that we do not demand of simply anybody else. So we are expecting trans people to be, to not have the humanity of whatever problems affect every other member of the population, right? To be able to access the medical care they need. Um, so conditions like autism, conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, the idea that um, if somebody has undergone certain kinds of experiences, then they should not be eligible for care betrays what is underneath all that, which is that there's an assumption, um, a very problematic assumption, that if these conditions exist, then one's gender um, is not because they are truly trans, meaning that they were born this way or that they are genuinely trans, but because something else is happening that makes them think they're trans or makes them uh, believe that they're trans. And therefore they are not, they are misdiagnosing themselves and clinicians need to rush in and correct that and legislators at that too. Um, we of course very much disagree with these and, and oppose these in our professional capacities, in our scientific capacities. Certainly I was trained as a psychologist and kind of like worked in inpatient units, worked in um, psychiatric emergency rooms. Uh, and this idea of weaponizing psychopathology to restrict access and rights is absolutely problematic. And, you know, to add to what Avi said, I mean, we, one of the things that, that the intent behind this is basically to say there's really no such thing as transness, neither in children nor in adults. It's just a symptom of some other underlying pathology, right? So, um, and you get, you, you treat that underlying pathology and then voila, transness is cured as well. It doesn't exist. And, you know, it's, and, you know, one of the reasons we wrote this book is, you know, we're um, writing as clinicians, um, who care deeply about the people we work with, who want a world that actually wants there to be more queer and trans people, that actually promotes the flourishing of queer and trans people. You know, we are, we, we have to take seriously the long record within psychiatry, within psychoanalysis, that has, has blood in its hands when it comes certainly to gay people, certainly to trans people. And there are clinicians today actively um, doing, you know, producing dubious studies and lending their names and lending their credentials as, quote, experts, they're basically underwriting these violent legislative attacks on the very possibility of trans life. They're serving uh, as, you know, um, the chosen experts for Ron DeSantis in Florida. They're writing papers that then get cited by the attorney general in Texas when, the, you know, when Paxton declares, you know, um, gender affirmative care for, for trans children to be a form of child abuse, right? The, and we are trying to sort of open up space for different kinds of conversations within psychoanalysis, but not just conversations, different ways of working with trans and queer people, right? That isn't trying to solve them, right? That's actually trying to sort of make it more possible to be in one's gender, right? And this, and we're embarrassed, all right? It's, it's not actually embarrassed isn't strong enough. It is a scandal what is being done in the name of psychoanalysis and psychiatry to trans kids. It is Thank you. May I add one more thing, Emma? Please. It, it is actually when, when Anne says that we are embarrassed and it is a scandal, I, I want to also remind us the very long track record of conversion therapies, which are basically systematized forms of therapeutic, and I put this in quotes, therapeutic torture that has created um, the tremendous um, pathologies for those who have had to endure them um, in the hands of clinicians who have been trying to treat transness out of trans people, to treat gender nonconformity, producing you know, like trauma that we see in the consulting room in a way that is really, really heartbreaking. And to put in place 
um, medical technologies and legal technologies, um, psychiatric technologies, therapeutic technologies that ultimately work to not just keep people from being who they experience themselves to be at any given moment. And I say at any given moment because people should get to transition and retransition and move in and out of different gender positions as feels right to them without them having to comply to a demand for gender stability that the notion of a core gender identity implies. This is one of the problems that the notion of core gender identity builds into our system. On the one hand, the promises, not that it has delivered, but the promises that if your core gender identity is female and you've been assigned male at birth, then you get to transition because this is your core gender identity. It's the truth of who you are. But what, what happens if kind of like your gender then shifts to something that is non-binary or to a form of gender that has doesn't even have a name yet or is more complex than we yet envision? Under that model, if we go by core gender identity, under that model, then the original transition was a false diagnosis. And now we have to double down and diagnose people more carefully, find who is truly trans, as opposed to somebody who is just autistic or impacted by trauma or has some other condition that kind of like, and I put this in quotation marks, that quote unquote accounts for their transness, right? So we want ways of thinking and ways of working clinically that allow us to think even beyond the notion that somebody's true gender deserves affirmation and services and rights and access. We want to be able to have ways of thinking, more complex ways of thinking that bestow upon queer and trans people the dignity of complexity and the dignity of of a, a complex life that involves Sometimes autism, sometimes traumatic experience, sometimes difficult early um, memories that that kind of like are the case for all people. Thank you. Um, we're talking with Anne Pellegrini and Avi Sakatapulu about their new book, Gender Without Identity, which is um, being released in June. Um, <clears throat> So I'd like to talk uh, about trans kids a little bit because, you know, about 80% of all the, the, there's over 500 bills that have been introduced in state legislatures across the United States um, this this past year targeting uh, transgender care. About 80% of those bills are specifically targeting trans kids. So they're denying trans kids, uh, you know, access to the bathroom, access to therapeutic services, access to medical services, access to uh, uh, denying them the ability to compete and participate in sports. Um, And I just, I'd like to talk about this for a minute. Um, Gender affirmative care is being challenged, particularly for minors. As psychoanalysts, where do you stand on this? Should children and their parents have a right to access gender affirmative care? And what are the consequences for trans and non-binary kids, psychological health if they're denied this type of health care. I guess the first thing to say is that, you know, as psychoanalysts, we unequivocally support the rights of trans children and their families to access gender affirmative care. Um, it, it, it is, you know, denying access to such care. We know that it's, it's actually has a negative impact on mental health. It gives rise to self-esteem issues. It can interfere with these children's um, sort of school performance, producing depression, anxiety, relationship problems, we know, and ultimately um, suicidality. We know there's a higher rate of suicidality among trans children. Um, and, you know, this is so, and that is just the easy thing to say. We, we unequivocally support the right of trans children and their families to access such care. I mean, Avi, do you want to say more about this? You actually work with trans, with trans yeah, young people. Yeah, I would say that it's important um, critically important, not just to be able to access that care, but to access it without um, without undue delay, without postponing it for adulthood or after a certain arbitrarily set number of amount of time um, because of this, well, because of a law uh, that has nothing to do with the child's needs, that does not come out of a particular 
um, of the particularities of a situation um, that has to do with a particular child, a particular family, a particular clinical relationship, um, because it is important to understand. And I think that many people who are not in this field miss this, is that care that is delayed um, is, is not corrected. Um, the, the damage, rather, that is caused by delayed care is not corrected upon the provision of care. What has happened between the time that care was needed and the time that care was delivered does damage that is irreversible and that takes years and years of therapeutic, supportive therapeutic work to help not reverse, um, but help find ways to, to for, for the person to be able to deal with some of it, to be able to enter relationships. The, the ways in which puberty can progress, talk about an, an irreversible effect, right? There's so much concern, so to speak, about like the irreversibility of um, cross-sex hormones. Uh, we should say that puberty blockers are, are reversible, but there's so, so much concern stated about the irreversibility of um, cross-sex hormones that it's easy to forget that puberty is irreversible, um, that once a child's body starts feminizing or masculinizing, there's going to be a lot more surgical intervention, medical treatment that needs to happen for that to be um, to be changed. It's never going to be completely reversed. And this, the emotional impact of having to go through a, a puberty that is unwanted and which is psychically painful is um, it's, it's, it's really harrowing to watch somebody go through that. And I say this, having worked with children who have been brought to me by their families for treatment um, after decisions have been made to delay blockers and to delay uh, medical care, um, children who have been extremely distressed um, to have had to deal with their bodies developing in ways that feel extremely discordant with their experience of themselves. Um, and I have sat with many parents who have really struggled with having made decisions of this sort only to watch their child be in a, in a really painful, um, prolonged painful process. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to talk about your professions for just a minute um, because it's something I really don't know that much about. I've, I've never been um, through psychoanalysis so I don't know that much about it. I mean, I have worn a Freudian slip, but um, <laughs> you both identify as queer analysts. Um, what changes are necessary within the profession to make queer people feel safe when undergoing analysis and therapy? Could you talk a little bit about what would someone expect and uh, if they needed to go see a psychoanalyst and what would specifically help queer people feel uh, safer if they need to go seek psychoanalysts, psychoanalysis. Well, mm -hmm. Th there's no question that the field ha has a lot of problems and that we need a lot of improvement um, and that historically psychoanalysts have been very much involved in, for example, starting with Robert Stoller um, and his initial work at UCLA, which was which involved seeing trans kids and, and saying, you know, this is the research that Jules Gill Pearson has done in the, the archival research at UCLA, kind of like ending up producing a, a, a certain kind of knowledge about trans kids that has proven to be very harmful in psychoanalysis. And the legacy of that continues till today. So we have, um, um, unfortunately, in our field, still a lot of colleagues who are arguing for, um, for, uh, for approaches that try to identify the trauma that has quote unquote, quote unquote caused transness so that it can be corrected so that children do not have to transition and qu quite problematic terms are used to describe what, what a transition involves in ways that scare other colleagues and, and certainly parents. But, but there are also um, pockets, very vibrant 
powerful pockets of psychoanalysis um, where one can find clinicians who work in ways that are not only affirmative, but working towards the flourishing of trans life. So at this point, we also have out trans uh, clinicians who are out identified as trans practicing, which is um, kind of like both, it's kind of problematic to even to have to point that out, but it's also very important that it's happening in our field who are now also teachers and supervisors. Um, And we have queer analysts who are working in ways that are gender expansive and gender interested rather than gender oppressive. Um, And it's certainly possible to find clinicians who work this way. My, My suggestion for anybody who's looking for psychoanalytic treatment, which is a treatment that is very deep and goes to places that other types of psychotherapeutic treatments do not go, would be to do very, very careful research before committing to to treatment with a clinician, which can make one very vulnerable. And the other thing to add here is that um, you get to ask questions. If you're looking for a psychotherapist, you know, we also, you know, both of you and I are trained as psychoanalysts. We do, both of us see people, many people we see, we see more than once a week, three, four times a week. Other people we see only once a week, right? So we also do, you know, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, the more maybe something people are more familiar with, the once a week treatment. Any person you're thinking of seeing as your, for your therapist, whether that person's a psychoanalyst, a psychologist, a social worker, you get to ask them questions, right? You, you, you know, a lot of, a lot of us have websites um, you can sort of, and people will often list the particular competency or interest in working with LGBTQ people. And if they don't list that, you can ask them about it. Absolutely. Um, this is, um, this is so important to enter into this kind of very vulnerable and intimate relation with another person. And it's, it's important to feel safe enough that you get to go to, let's say, scary places. Cause it's, it's a really curious kind of safety that you do have in therapy because you want to feel like, someone you trust so you can talk about things that actually might scare you um, so that the word safety is doesn't mean you're always going to feel comfortable or good but you're going to feel like this uh, kind of security there right that there's a baseline sort of respect and, and dignity given to you we're almost out of time. I, I just, we're not going to be able to get to everything I want to in your book, but it's, it's just this is such a great conversation. We're talking today with Anne Pellegrini and Avi Sakatapulu about their new book, which is being released in June called uh, Gender Without Identity. Um, so one last thing I want to get to that I haven't, uh, don't really have so many conversations about, but that you definitely talk about. Uh, you talk about how trauma may uh, play a part in the formation of queer and trans experience. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Do these types of conversations discredit or even pathologize queer and trans identity? I'm gonna, I'll say something quickly and then let you jump in, which is that, and this is really important. We're saying that trauma can sometimes have a share in the formation of queerness and transness. And it can sometimes have a share in the formation of cisness and straightness too. So it's like all gender and all sexuality can actually be touched into being in some way out of, out of trauma. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what I was going to say to your question, Emma, when you said, you know, like, does that discredit um, trans experience? I think it depends how you have this conversation. There's certainly a way to have this conversation that kind of like funnels into Uh, transphobic thinking into thinking that, oh, you know, if trauma has something to do with it, then why don't we just correct it so that that person doesn't have to quote unquote suffer being trans, right? That's one way that that conversation goes. And it's usually the way that the conversation goes and why we've been so afraid to have it. But, you know, I'm going to speak about my practice for a moment. I've also sat with patients who have been kind of like very clear about their gender identification, who have are now way into their transition, live kind of like kind of like lives that are characterized by kind of like the normal happinesses and miseries that everybody goes through, um, who have also undergone traumatic experiences and who have come to wonder 
if their traumatic experiences may have had some some share in how kind of like how their transness was shaped. And I've I've heard similar things from um, gay people and kind of like we, we don't see this being asked of cis or straight people. But as Anne was saying, like I, I think that we we see in the clinic all the time the contribution that kind of like trauma has in the formation of some cisnesses and some transnesses and some uh, non-binary experiences. So we need to be able to talk about this, not as a way of discrediting or invalidating anybody, but as a way of helping people understand the texture of their experience so that they can have a more kind of like nuanced and deep relationship to it. The, the idea that, that trauma kind of like bends one out of shape is such a problematic idea and it has such a long legacy in our field that it's become hard to discern that people also respond to traumatic experiences by, by creating aspects of themselves in ways that can be sturdy and, um, and vitalizing uh, and incredibly personally meaningful. And to say that we need to, in some way, um, to say that, that those people are not worth of our dignity because trauma may have had an impact in their life is, is just, it's not, it's, it's not a, a deep way of understanding how trauma works. And I'm going to say something, and I, um, I, I'm going to have to try to say it very carefully, that, you know, like the right right now, not just the right, um, people who understand themselves to be liberal, who are in fact promoting, you know, like actually transphobic clinical thinking about transness, they see um, trauma as warping, right? Warping this core experience that should be binary gender. So um, trauma causes transness, let's fix both. So we are daring to say there may well be a relationship between trauma and transness, as there may well be a relationship between trauma and any gender. But rather than see that gender that may emerge in relationship to some kind of traumatic experience as the problem to be fixed, what if we see it as a creative, in some sense, a creative solution to what happened? And by saying that, I don't mean that, and you know, Abby and I are both psychoanalysts, so we certainly do not mean that people are consciously sitting around saying, oh, that thing happened to me. How shall I do my gender in relation to it? We're talking about processes that are also unconscious. They're happening sort of, let's say, beneath are kind of a volitional choice, but we still, there's a shaping that happens. And then ideally it's a shaping that comes to fit for you, right? This like, oh, this shape works. It feels like me and might feel like you so much that you actually start to think of yourself as always having been this way, right? Um, So that, but this is, you know, we are making a very different claim about the relationship between trauma and gender. And um, we're hoping that by making this claim, we can relieve some of the anxiety that other clinicians have when sitting with a trans patient or a cis patient for that matter, and worrying about, oh my goodness, I'm hearing about trauma. What if it's connected to the gender? Well, what if? Relax, listen carefully, listen with care. This does not disqualify the gender of the person sitting before you. Thank you. Um, So we've been talking today with Avi Sakatapulu and with Anne Pellegrini. I wish that we had more time because there's so much more I'd love to get into. I'd love to learn more about how uh, Jean Laplanche has informed your your work. Um, you know, I'd love to talk to you more about your book, but unfortunately we are out of time. Um, is there anything in the last couple of minutes that we haven't touched on that you'd just like to make sure to get in? You know, the one thing I would say is that, you know, this focus on trans kids is cruel, um, it's violent, and it's also a wedge issue because, you know, this they're not interested in trans children, not interested in children at all. The whole rhetoric of saving children is to advance this, you know, this, a straight jacketing, you know, sort of almost political theology. Um, so um, this is, um, you know, the the lie of child protection um, is, is just... Um, I, it, it makes me so enraged. I'm 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 daily speechless by reading the newspaper. Thank you, Avi. Yeah, thank you, Emma, for this for this last word. What what I would 
want to emphasize is this. This is a very particular political moment where we see the backlash against trans children precisely because so many um, steps had been taken in the right direction. And part of what this backlash can cause in us as a culture, but also in us as clinicians, is a fear to think complexly and to think to think in ways that may not be what we're accustomed to, um, but to dare into territories that are risky in order to be able to give more density to our understanding of queer and trans life, to give it more texture rather than accepting we don't need to accede to the blackmail that either somebody, either, either there's no validity to trans and queer life, or if there's some validity, it's because it must be like that from the get-go. And therefore, anybody who is not like that from the get-go is instantly dismissible. We need to dare this risky thinking in order to be able to complexify our discussions. Thank you. Thank you so much. We've been talking today with Avi Sakatapulu and Anne Pellegrini about their new book, Gender Without Identity. Uh, where can people find that book starting in June? Uh, do you know where they'll be able, available? Yes, the book is available from um, a small press called the Unconscious in Translation Press, and it's available for reorder now. And uh, we're also both on social media, so we're available for anybody who's interested to reach out to us to talk about these ideas. If you read the book and you have something to share, you have a thought, you have um, kind of like something that you you feel is important to communicate to us, please please be in touch with us on our social media. And, and I should also add that um, we love when people order the book through our very small press. It will also be available through that big book wholesaler that sells other sorts of goods as of June 6th as well, but um, I won't say their name. Okay. <laughs> um, and if people want to find you online, uh, where can they go to find you? Um, my website is um, avgisaketopoulou.com, um, A-V-G-I-S-A-K-E-T-O-P-O-U-L-O-U.com. Um, and my Instagram is uh, avgolis at avgolis98, A-V-G-O-L-I-S 98. So I'm findable on 